Welcome back to the 60th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a Twitter Files report talking about how Pfizer colluded with Twitter while Jack Dorsey and his squad was still in power there. We have an article from TechCrunch talking with Senator Mark Warner of Virginia about cybersecurity and the future of legislating in technology. And we have an article from CBS talking about Biden's plan B for relieving student debt after his first plan was stopped in the courts. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, it's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So how can we stop big tech companies from being influenced by the government or other corporate interests? The, The Twitter files have shown us that this was not just limited to Twitter. The suppression of information that could have greatly benefited the public is unexplored. But what do we do about it? Do we force government to regulate them, to come down and say, you can't do these certain things, you have to allow certain types of information? I would argue that just entangles the two more. It actually promotes more government interference, or at least government communication with these tech companies. Because then the tech companies are going to say, well, we made this regulation, this part's not clear, what do we do here? And they'll just refer to the government, and the government will just give them advice and say, oh, you should just do this. And since they've regulated them, it'll seem ever more okay. It'll seem as if they're just doing their job rather than not having the government involved at all, if possible. You know, and where do we get a solution from? What would the solution be if you were to be ruler of the world tomorrow? What would you do to solve this Overconnection, some would even say collusion between government, big tech, and other corporate interests. And speaking of big tech and Twitter, our first article comes from the Daily Signal. Twitter Files explores how Pfizer official colluded with big tech to censor speech on COVID-19. Yes, we're starting out with a hot one. We'll see if YouTube likes this. I don't think they will, but I really don't care. I think it's an important topic that we need to discuss. So have you ever heard of Scott Gottenleb? And I will mispronounce his name this entire time. It could be Gutleb, it could be Gottleb. We'll see. If not, it's probably because he's been a man behind the scenes of Pfizer since 2019, where he was appointed to their board. And before that, he was an FDA commissioner from about 2017 to April of 2019. So you may have seen him on some personal interviews out there. And the article claims that he was the darling of the media like Anthony Fauci. I won't lie to you. I, when I saw a picture of his face, I, was, I said to myself, I don't think he's the darling of the media. Either that or I stopped watching so much mainstream media that I didn't see him. But I don't remember seeing him, especially during COVID times. But we have a quote that we're going to lead with here. Quote, the new information from inside Twitter shows how elites such as Gottenlieb with connections to large corporations and the government can twist and suppress what gets to the public. 
wrapping society's ability to speak freely and find the truth around his finger. According to the Twitter files, report released by former New York Times reporter, the vaccine skeptic Alex Brenson, Gutlieb coordinated with the social media giant to suppress alternative policy recommendations for how to respond to COVID-19, end quote. So people that are maybe critics or detractors of this article would say, well, so maybe he just sent a couple of emails about overall policy issues and concerns, right? Well, actually, he targeted specific tweets from specific journalists in order to have them labeled as misinformation or outright have the tweet flagged. And this is the really outrageous part, because though Twitter doesn't have to take action on these things, they can say, okay, we'll take your uh, note under advisement, we love your opinion, thank you for saying something, they complied to with his requests. And this is the extremely dangerous part. And like I said, it's very outrageous because at the end of the day, because he is a person of status, and I'm not trying to say he's an elite, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to use that type of language. But because he is a person who has a position on the Pfizer board, who has some sort of status, who obviously has some form of knowledge or at least implicitly does because he's at a high-ranking position in Pfizer. He worked for the U.S. government. So obviously he, you could assume that he knows something about the issues he's talking about. And I'm not saying he doesn't. But the fact that Twitter takes the word of these people, these people with perceived status, that it is believed they have a good understanding of what is going on, and then they take them at their word, and then they remove or flag different types of content is extremely dangerous. Imagine a doctor who comes out of John Hopkins has a very contrarian view to a medication that has been proven to work, but he moves up in the ranks, his opinion gains more steam, even though it is not 100% well-founded, but he's in a position of power now, and he goes to Twitter, or at least Jack Dorsey's Twitter before, maybe he goes to Facebook now and says, well, actually, I have studies here that prove this drug is not as safe as blah, blah, blah. We need to label this as misinformation. And 10 years down the road, it turns out he was wrong. He was just boosting the profits of a company that he had stock in. And obviously, that is a different situation. But the idea that just because a person is of great status and they have worked hard, and they have been in positions that inherently or implicitly or explicitly give them power, does not necessarily mean they know what they're talking about. Because in the case of Lieb getting rid of a... Actually, I'll read the quote here, because it it really highlights it better than I ever could describe it. Quote, Gitlieb reached out to Twitter to suppress a tweet in September 2021 that said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but a viral pathogen with a child mortality rate of less than 0% has cost our children nearly three years of schooling. The former New York Times reporter noted that the Pfizer's vaccinations soon would be approved for ages 5 to 11, a sizable market for the pharmaceutical giant. And can we just, the poetry there, the absolutely beautiful way that he went through and enunciated that, that tweet. But this is what we're, we're getting at here. At the end of the day, 
these people could, if they're perceived to have some sort of authority, could change the public information or the discourse. They can change what information gets out there to the people and therefore could affect their own profits in some way, shape, or form. If you were told by the FDA that this certain product is unhealthy for you, or if you were told by a random journalist that you trust that this product is unhealthy for you, and then an FDA official goes to Twitter and says, actually, we don't have the proof for that, that's not true, label it as misinformation, then at the end of the day, maybe you're less likely when you read that tweet to say, okay, you know, that product really is unhealthy for me. You might read the tag that says it's misleading and be like, oh, well, actually, you know, maybe I shouldn't change my behavior. Maybe it's not as bad as this reporter's saying. And 10 years down the line, a study comes out, multiple studies come out and prove that the journalist was at least based in some way. So we have to be very diligent about these sort of things. And we can't pretend that science... Though we have had conclusions made over long periods of time, when it comes to things that are happening right now in the moment, especially when it was COVID, we cannot come to a outright conclusion from the very beginning. Science takes a long time. Studies have to be done multiple times to be tested for their efficacy to make sure that they are actually holding up the proper standards needed in a scientific study and that the results bear fruit multiple times. So that's why science is an ongoing process. And as new technology evolves, maybe we can do some new tests that change the perspective or change the result of those current tests. So that's why the science is never really solved. So when people say trust the science, they say trust the information we have at this point. But what becomes dangerous is when they say, no, 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 the information we have at this point is 100% correct and it cannot be wrong. And we have to suppress any other type of information that goes against that science. Even though, as I just explained, science is ever evolving, ever growing. And if 10 years down the line they were right and that study holds true, good on them for sticking strong to their beliefs. But if it turns out to be false, we have to take that into consideration and we have to say that, okay, in the future, we're not going to make the same mistake of saying this is the science full stop because it was just proven wrong in this one example. So I think that that's a really important part of this debate as well because science is looked at as a, a status or authority kind of career path or at least in the United States, it's seen as you've put in the time, the effort, you've done the studies, you have some understanding of this issue beyond the common layman, and it's kind of an appeal to authority. Oh, well, I'm a scientist. I said this is how it is, and we can't have any alternative opinions out there. And that's extremely dangerous, and we can't have that. We have to allow for this discussion to keep going because maybe Brenson, Brenson, sorry, Brennanson from the New York Times, maybe this reporter was indeed wrong. Maybe when he quoted the low mortality rate for children, he was missing some sort of statistical anomaly. But because they just labeled his tweet as misinformation, instead of having that discussion and proving why he was wrong, people just outright dismissed it. Or the people that already believed that said, oh, there's Twitter again. They're just suppressing the information. And it made them believe it more. So this doesn't allow us to have an actual conversation to spread knowledge, to test knowledge out in the public. And that's why I think these big tech companies are extremely, extremely scary. And that's why people were so excited for Musk to take over Twitter. 
not only to open the platform back up to stop this behavior, but also to show what Twitter and, by extension, other social media companies had been up to. The free flow of information is crucial for a thriving society. As I just described a minute ago, if we cannot communicate, if we cannot share ideas, spread ideas, shoot down the bad ideas, then at the end of the day, society crumbles. And considering people don't want to do it in person anymore, we have to have online spaces that allow these conversations to happen. And yes, I get it. Some of these spaces become toxic, and they're not necessarily great for children. As I highlighted in an article that I read Yes, two days ago at this point. And I, I understand that at the end of the day, we should have places that are safe. But at the utter extreme, at the other extreme, I should say, we need places where it can be chaotic. Conversation happens in these chaotic regions where everybody's throwing in their opinion. Everybody has different opinions. And if we just have safe spaces where nobody really says their opinion, we're not going to get anywhere. And maybe we should consider having kids off of social media in general. Maybe we should say, no, you can't use social media until this specific age. And if you are using it, we can use our algorithms to make it kid-safe content, a kid-sheltered location. And then you can join the discourse when you get a little bit older. Now, of course, that's outrageous to some people. And I may even agree with what I just said, that it could be outrageous. Because some kids are smarter than some adults I know. And some adults are way smarter than some kids I know. But... Kids can still add to that conversation, but maybe really young kids should be protected in some way, and they shouldn't be in this wider algorithm that shows them content that is going to cause them to feel depressed, to harm themselves. Or maybe parents shouldn't let their kids on in the first place because we've seen the effects. There are lots of different options here. But at the end of the day, having more freedom, more openness on these platforms is actually going to help society, even though it may seem more chaotic at first. And of course, there is the aspect that at the end of the day, you don't have to stand across from somebody in person and look at them when you tell them something demoralizing or when you insult them. So of course, the internet does promote that sort of conversation. But remember, that type of conversation with the conversation attached with the conversation talking about how we should operate society, what values we want to promulgate, what is important, how we should operate, what legislation should go into place. That's an even more important conversation that I think trumps the toxicity that can come with some people online. All right, well, we spent enough time on this article. Uh, just quick rundown. The Twitter files have exposed that big pharma agencies people from high-status positions and in the government have direct lines of communication with these companies, and they are very often making these companies or suggesting lightly that these companies tow a particular line. And as I've highlighted throughout this whole thing, that is not acceptable. We cannot have an official narrative. That is just like having a central news organization, governmental news organization that tells us how we should think, what we should think, where we should go, so on and so forth. That is unacceptable in my mind, and we need to move beyond that. All right, let's jump into our second article. This one comes from TechCrunch. Senator Mark Warner on cybersecurity, Musk Twitter, and legislating killer robots. And yes, I I read that correctly, I promise. (laughs) So as tech becomes ever more a part of our everyday lives, whether that be your cell phone, AirPods, 
earbuds, the TV you use, the computer you use. It becomes something that legislators have begun to talk about taking a closer look at what we should, or sorry, what they should and can regulate. CES, a convention to display new and future tech, has begun inviting legislators like Mark Warner of Virginia to talk to panels at CES. TechCrunch sat down with Mark Warner for an interview at the Las Vegas Convention Center last week. Quote, You have a technology background, but I think there's a lack of tech knowledge in leaders generally and in the government more broadly. Given how much tech touches every piece of legislation, what can we do to catch Congress up to speed? End quote. And that's the interviewer speaking. And then Warner responds, quote, I think people are trying. The good news is that most of the technology issues don't fall on a liberal conservative continuum. My tired phrase it's, is, it's more of a future past than left right. I think that makes it easier at times to find coalitions. With Huawei and the semiconductor, I've been up to my eyes in both. And that technology competition is national security. If we have a conflict with China, I don't believe that it's going to be who has the most aircraft carriers and airplanes. It's going to be who dominates satellites. Can you turn off the power? End quote. And I think he brings up great points here. At the end of the day, we have moved beyond traditional warfare where you put boots on the ground. Let's be clear. Of course, it still happens, and it will still happen if we go to conflict, get in a conflict with China. But we move beyond that. We have to look at the cybersecurity front. We have to make sure our infrastructure is fully insulated from outside threats. Remember the uh, issue with a hack in a gas production company in the southeast of America? It shut down the pumps of a company for about two days, caused a spike in gas prices, mass panic, people trying to get to the local gas station, get gas. We have to make sure that this key infrastructure is protected, and that's what Mark Warner has been doing, or at least attempting to do. He's at least been trying to bring Congress people up to speed and bring these issues to the forefront. And he was also a main component of the CHIPS Act, pushing that forward through the Senate and the House to bolster our ability to make semiconductors a very important, crucial technology that will not only make other countries dependent on us in the future, but also make us less dependent on places like China and Taiwan for cheap semiconductors. So at the end of the day, he's not just highlighting the problems or the fact that we need to legislate in general, he's also trying to highlight that this is a national security issue going forward because every single piece of communication technology that we use in the military is a piece of tech, is connected to some sort of network, is connected to a satellite. And if you can shut down that satellite remotely, you can completely stop any sort of troop movement in its tracks unless they're willing to go old-fashioned and pull out maps and invade certain regions but if that's not on our home territory if we're not in downtown la where some of these soldiers know what they're doing if we're on a remote island in taiwan and they don't have gps then the home team is going to have an advantage and that's why these sort of issues and i know that's an extreme example i just gave but these sort of issues need to seriously be addressed and we need to make sure our infrastructure is safe on a cybersecurity front and warner is of course 
talking or correct about Huawei as well, building infrastructure in major countries. And the company Huawei is liable to the CCP and most definitely a a security concern. But he uses it as a justification that technology as a whole can be a national security issue. And I've just outlined how it can be. But I am kind of concerned with that leap because at the end of the day, he could make a leap that, well, Chinese companies, they could, through an app, gain access to information on your phone. So we have to put certain restrictions, certain surveillance technology, or certain programs that protect your phone on there that could, in the future, be exploited to track our phones and things of that nature. And, of course, that is a very, very odd extrapolation, and that is a very big leap on my part as well. But generally classifying almost any technology as a national security concern, it it can be a little bit scary in my mind. That kind of language leads to an overreach of government in order to, quote-unquote, protect its citizens, when at the end of the day, they're actually exerting more control over their citizens. But at the on the other end, he says that TikTok's bad because it's gathering information, and I agree with him. I, I can hold both of those views, that at the end of the day, it could be exploited to hurt citizens in the future, but also that TikTok's bad, and it is exploiting user data right now, and I think we should ban it. But that's also as a person who doesn't use it, so I'm not emotionally connected to it. But I know a few people who would be really outraged or angered to hear that from me. So Warner in the interview goes on to talk about how tech, the tech field often moves very, very quickly and therefore can be hard to pin down and regulate properly. But he brings up a good point that we need to foster a culture of transparency and privacy and that if these tech companies, if they take on the responsibility of being transparent, ensuring privacy, not exploiting their customer data and selling them to third parties, then legislation, regulation may be more sparse because if that culture is dominant in the tech industry, then the government may not have to come in and regulate anything because they're being ethical in the way they're going about making their money. Now, of course, tech companies are going to use whatever advantage they can get. I'm not naive. But at the end of the day, if we can try to have that culture, like Google used to say, don't be evil, that is no longer part of their motto. It used to be. But if we can have that sort of culture in the tech industry, then legislation and regulation doesn't need to be as strong. And I think that's a better way to go about it. I think having the society imbue the values it wants in those companies rather than forcing Big Brother, the government, to come in and control the companies or limit the companies is a better way to go about it. So at the end of the day, if you can find a way to contact a Google representative or someone at your favorite tech company and tell them, hey, I really am concerned about this, and you get a few friends to do it, and they get a few friends to do it, you can show these tech companies that these issues matter to us. And if it matters to you, you can make an active change. And that's how we go about making change, rather than asking our governors, rather than asking our senators, rather than asking our congressmen to enact legislation. We can have an effect. We don't have to outsource that to somebody else. We, have to, we can put in the time and we can have the effect. Now, are most people going to do that? Probably not. But if you're motivated and if you care, you can. And I just want to make sure that people understand that going forward. And Mark Warner is a person, he's one of my senators here in Virginia. He is a person who, while he can be very left on some issues, 
he has moderated a little bit. So if you're a person who really cares about this and is worried about big tech and you want to send something into him just to display that you care and that you have heard his position on certain things, go ahead. I think he'll listen to you at the end of the day. If you're a liberal, if you're a Republican, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Still speak to your senator. Just because they're an opposite denomination, that's the wrong way to put it. Just because they're the opposite party does not mean that having a conversation with them is going to end the world. We need to have open communication, even if you don't agree with them on all their policies. I don't agree with Warner on all of his policies. Some of the tech stuff he says, I'm 100% on board. Some of the investigations that he just proposed in the Senate, I'm 100% on board with. There are some policies of his that I agree with. So at the end of the day, just because there are a few I don't agree with him with, that's not going to stop me from communicating or at least sending something to his office and asking him what his opinion is on something like this. Now, of course, that implies that he cares. He may just have an aide send it back. But at the end of the day, we need to be willing to communicate with people that we agree with, disagree with, so on and so forth, especially when it comes to the future of our nation and the future of technology in our nation. Because at the end of the day, as this author points out, tech is in every single part of our lives. We are practically cyborgs at this part point. And at, if we allow legislation to be over-restrictive, it's no longer just going to affect big tech companies. It's going to end up affecting us as well. So keep that in mind moving forward. And then we have a very quick article here from CBS News. Biden has Plan B for student debt relief, where here's how it works. Quote, the Biden administration is pushing forward with another approach to tackling the student debt crisis. While its main initiative, a plan to forgive up to 20000 in student loans per borrower, remains mired in legal limbo. Even if the debt forgiveness effort is struck down by the courts, the Department of Education's Plan B could help millions of borrowers by overhauling income-driven repayment plans. It also addresses some of the worst pitfalls of student debt such as negative amortization, or when a person's loan balance keeps growing despite their consistently making payments, end quote. And, you know, this really does sound great on the surface, but once you take a closer look, I think people will be a little bit more hesitant and they'll realize it's a little bit more window dressing than anything. This plan B is meant to focus on IDRs, income-driven repayment plans, which can, are held by about one-third of students who took out student loans that are backed by the government. So from the start, this is n not really helping as many people as Biden's initial plan would. It's a smaller segment, but it's still trying to affect some change and help certain segments of the population, especially those that make less money than the graduates coming out making 100000 per year that would be able to pay back their loans very quickly. Quote, income-driven repayment plans are designed to help make student loans more manageable by pegging a person's monthly payment to their income. About one-third of all borrowers are enrolled in an IDR, according to Pew Research. But critics have pointed out that IDRs have some major pitfalls. First, there are four such plans, each with their own rules and criteria, which can be a headache for borrowers to navigate. Worse... The plan have been criticized to, for allowing student debt to grow through negative amortization, with one report from SBPC 
noting that some borrowers have seen their college loan obligations double or triple despite being a re on repayment plans. Negative amortization occurs when a repayment isn't enough to cover the interest on a loan, which means the unpaid interest is added to the loan's principal, and that can then snowball despite the borrower's repayments. So how this reconstruction, how this readdressing of these plans will help students is they'll cut down the amount of programs, they'll get it to just one, and in theory, they'll no longer have to pay the interest on the interest, or that interest won't be added to the principal at the end of the day. So if you pay $1,000 and $900 of that is principal, 100 of that is interest, but the interest charged that month should have been 500 in the past, the extra 400 you're not paying would be added to the principal of your loan, meaning that it could be charged, interest could be charged on that principal again. So basically you're paying interest on interest. But now if you're doing the exact same thing, you're paying 900 of the principal, 100 of the interest, and there's 400 interest left over, now it's just tacked on to the end. It's no longer put back into the principal, so you don't have to pay interest on it, but it's still there. You still have to pay it at the end of the day. They can't just get rid of that interest cost. So while it sounds nice, if you notice here, it's actually just delaying the amount of time that it's going to take for you to pay something, which means that you are inherently paying more interest over time. Because remember, they're not going to restructure these government loans so you they get less money. They're taking on risk by giving out these government loans. So they're still going to ensure that they're going to be able to keep some profit from it. And these sort of programs, or the way they're going to restructure it, incentivizes people to not necessarily worry about always paying off their interest every single month, not pursuing a larger job, a better job that can help them pay it off. But rather, oh, no, you don't have to pay interest on this interest anymore. So it's not going to snowball as quickly. But that means that people are probably going to be less motivated to get rid of that money or that interest that's racking up. So they're going to be willing to let it sit for longer. And they may be paying down a large percentage of the principal, but there's still that interest in the background. And over time, that will build up. And the longer that you don't fully pay off your principal, the longer you're going to be gaining interest. Now, of course, like I said, it's not going to snowball but you're still going to have to pay more money because you're keeping that loan for a longer period of time, period, full stop. So I think it's an interesting way to go about it. I think that it stops the snowball effect, but at the end of the day, you still can't declare bankruptcy on these loans. So if it's a snowball effect or you're just indebted until you're 96 years old, Either way, it, it doesn't matter because you can't declare bankruptcy on these loans. You will be paying them for the rest of your life. There is no way out of this situation whatsoever. And they're not addressing the key issue, which is at the end of the day, <laughs> colleges are charging too much money because the government is subsidizing colleges. They're directly saying, okay, yeah, we're going to provide these loan programs. We're going to provide these different programs that make it easier for college students to go to college. And then colleges say, well, if you're subsidizing them, then we need to raise prices a little bit because at the end of the day, not all of that money is coming directly to us. So, yeah, it's a very interesting battle. We'll see how it plays out. It sounds like it's a genuine effort on the Biden administration, and I really, I think a lot of people will appreciate that. But does that mean it's the correct way to go about that? 
I don't necessarily think so. If anything, if you're, this sounds like a half measure. If you want to take a full measure, I'm not saying I'm in favor of this, but if you were to take a full measure, cancel all student debt, period, full stop. Any student debt that is held by the government, cancel it. Boom. Gone. Now that will cause a whole bunch of other issues, but at least it's not a half measure that doesn't help everybody and it only helps a certain portion of this population. All right, let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from the animal rescue site. St. Bernard and Cow develop adorable friendship at Virginia Sanctuary. So dogs famously can get along with almost every breed of animal, but especially when they are young and impressionable. Quote, five years ago, Susan Klenenberg came home with a newborn calf named Bucket that she had gotten at a livestock auction. After their arrival, the baby bovine lay down almost immediately on a bed belonging to Klinenberg's four-year-old St. Bernard, Colton, and fell sound asleep. And honestly, it doesn't sound like a great way to start a relationship or a friendship, stealing somebody else's bed, but it, it did blossom from there. Colton and Bucket, quote, Colton and Bucket got better acquainted, spending their time frolicking, frolicking outside as if they were both dogs romping and licking and snuggling one another. It was the perfect place for the odd pairing to happen, as Klinenberg is the founder of Little Bucket's Farm Sanctuary in Bornox, Virginia. Behaving, these two were behaving as if they were two peas from the same pod, end quote. And there are some cute videos, though, I'll tell you now, uh, Bucket is way bigger than Colton at this point, but I probably didn't have to tell you that. You could figure that out, considering how big cows get. But if you want to see any of the cute videos or any of the cute photos or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. And also down there is the Twitter handle at your daily flip. I post the link to the podcast Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so you can go directly from Twitter. And every once in a while, if I see something that is engaging, even though I don't spend much Twitter uh, time on Twitter, I'll put out a maybe a funny post or a critical one and spread a little bit of news. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.